everybody. Welcome to Talking Tina, the Antifada side project, where I talk about America Latina with some guests who have some knowledge on the subject. We had an episode, I think the first one was about Che Guevara, but we ended up talking mostly about Argentina in that episode, a little bit about Cuba, but this one's going to be properly about Cuba, especially the contemporary politics of Cuba over the last couple of years. And we are here with D, a comrade from Oakland, who's part of the Tamarack Collective. If you're in the Bay Area, you got to go check out Tamarack. Hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later. How are you doing today, D? Doing well, doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so you did an interview with uh, an anarchist in Cuba about J-11. And of course, our listeners are probably familiar with J-6, that horrible insurrection. And some of us know about J-12, when uh, a lot of anarchists got owned at Trump's first inauguration. But listener at home, do you know about J-11? Does J-11 ring a bell to you? That's uh, July 11th in Cuba, 2021. There was an uprising and not a lot was written about it outside of like the usual either anti-imperialist or leftist sources or regime change kind of media outlets. So uh, D has got this interview with an anarchist saying the revolutionary perspective of the Cuban people on J-11 and what those events look like to them. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we begin, you met the person you interviewed in Cuba. Do you want to talk a little bit about your trip there, what it's like to travel there? Totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks again um, for having me on and everything. I think uh, the, the first thing I want to say, just as a preface, you know, is that I, I don't know, um, you know, I, really all that I'm going to be drawing on uh, in this conversation is this one month that I spent there and then the ensuing conversation that I had with the comrade. Um, from Cuba. I, I don't, I don't study Cuba. I've never been to Cuba before this trip. Um, I don't, I don't really know anything particularly about it. So I'm not claiming expertise in any way. I'm just reflecting on an experience, uh, that I had, um, for one month being there and then, and then the ensuing, you know, my relationship with this, uh, with this, these comrades really. Um, so I want to start by saying that, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wanted to go to Cuba specifically to learn about July 11th. Um, you know, obviously, you know, everyone was, we were all really excited and invigorated in, in 2019 um, by, you know, the the global wave of, um, of social movements um, in, in pretty much like every nameable country, you know, uh, which finally reached uh, the United States in 2020, of course, um, in the wake of, of the coronavirus, you know, combining with so many other things. Um, and, you know, in and then, it, and then it finally reached Cuba, which was a place that, you know, since 1959 has seen, you know, basically no uh, organized or spontaneous uh, social movement of any type, you know, no street movements whatsoever. Um, and of course, there's a lot of reasons for that, you know, we can get into maybe and, um, and, and we can we can look at the interview uh, to learn from. Oh, because people um, are so happy there. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah because everything's, everything's so well. good. Either, I mean, the two narratives, right, are either everything's so good and perfect, uh, or um, because, you know, it's just, uh, you know, complete um, brutal authoritarianism and, um, you know, everyone just uh, is going to get, you know, either immediately, you know, thrown in the gulag or whatever. Um, but, you know, obviously there's there's complexities uh, between those two kind of extremes, you know. And so, um, yeah, I was um, I, I just wanted to I had read about it a little bit um, 
And, you know, it was, it was, it followed similar sort of, it seemed to me to the, to the, the untrained, ignorant, you know, perspective to follow some, some of the same, very much follow within the same trajectory of the 2019 to 2020 cycle of struggle um, that responds to, you know, a very similar set of, of problems that people are confronting, you know, you know, unable to afford a basic uh, ability to live, you know, and then of course, disturbed further by coronavirus, you know, people's, uh, people's uh, sort of lives in common being um, existentially threatened, um, essentially, um, and, and people taking to the streets to reclaim, reclaim their power in order to do that. Um, and, and of course, you know, what, what caught my attention was, you know, the way in which, um, you know, thinking about, um, I, I wanted to just know more about what the Cuban situation really was. What what is what does capitalism mean in Cuba? What what does socialism mean in Cuba? Um, and how are people responding to that? Um, and especially given that you know uh, one of the kind of paradigmatic tactics of um, of the day of July 11th um, was expropriation and looting. You know, and and largely, of course, it's government stores. Um, so I thought that was really important to to think through and, and what the implications were for that. You know, and, and of course, ultimately, the the direction was. Um, what are the horizons, you know, like what, what point is Cuba at right now? Um, and where, 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 where will it be going? You know, um, especially with kind of um, Fidel, you know, obviously no longer being in the picture as of a few years ago, which had a massive uh, impact um, and kind of, and I wanted to kind of think through and understand some of these, some of these questions. Um, and, and that's really why I went and that, and that's why, you know, I connected with these folks down there and had the ensuing conversation. Um, so hopefully we'll get into some of those pieces more uh, today. Yeah, so a lot of people go to Cuba on these sort of government sponsored trips, like these solidarity trips, you know, they usually cost like a couple thousand dollars and you have like a government uh, sponsored guide and he takes you to like, you know, uh, farms and collectives around the country. It sounds like a nice trip, but um, you weren't on a trip like that, right? You just kind of no, went your own way. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Um, totally. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for specifying that. I um, no, I just went solo. Um, I actually do. I had some connections in Cuba, um, and I, uh, you know, it's very controlled um, because tourism is the main industry. Tourism is the main kind of um, you know source of revenue generation. You know, they they you have to stay in um, official uh, locations um, in order to like official sort of hostels or hotels, you know, um, or I mean, some of them are kind of they're on Airbnb sort of. But um, it's it's a sep- it's a different kind of um, sort of uh, contractual relationship um, relative to. So a lot of people make their make their living this way, right, by hosting, by having like B&Bs. Uh, but but it's all sanctioned, uh, uh, or it's all um, you know, it's all it has to be contracted with the government, you know. Um, so you can't just go and like couch surf. I mean, there's some people that are on the couch surfing site, um, but technically it's illegal, and there and there's some consequences for doing that. So I did just go solo, um, and I stayed um, basically in yeah in kind of B and B's um, with from connections that I had uh, from people in the states um, before um, and. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of initial uh, impressions, in, in contrast to these kind of very guided government tours, um, and, and again, I think this is something that's maybe even changed in the past five years. As I talked to people, um, they, they talked about the way, and I brought this up, this pattern I'm about to name. Uh, they said even in the past five years, this has changed. Every single person I spoke to, you know, I, I, as I walked around, I, I basically just walked around and chatted with people on the street, you know, um, and within one sentence of talking to me, Every single person, young, old, man, woman, whatever, 
um, was basically like, I hate the government. I want the fall of the regime. Like, mm. um, and that was probably the most striking thing in the, in the first week of being there. Um, and, and that really made me want to dig more. Um, and then of course it took me kind of a while to, to, to meet up with these, these comrades, but I, they, they were, you know, people I wanted to meet when I, when I went down there. Um, so I was carrying all these questions, uh, to them ultimately, uh, to talk through and they were really helpful in, in, in thinking through that. You know, I, I went there, uh, I think about five years ago, 2018 maybe. Um, and I talked to just a lot of people on the street too. Um, a lot of different kinds of people cause people are, you know, <laughs> want to talk to you there, which is, uh, sometimes fun, sometimes a little annoying, you know, if you're asking for directions and they want to talk to you for an hour. Um, but, uh, Nobody, no one told me like, I hate the government, but everyone did have some grievances and some people would say like, we want things to change here. We don't necessarily want capitalism. We don't necessarily want like America to take over, but things need to change. So since then, you know, things have gotten a lot worse because I went there. Actually, I remember when it was, it was like right after that uh, failed coup in Venezuela, the the like really, uh, right. it was around May Day. And yeah. so when I was on the plane going over there, I, I had a stopover in Florida and like on the news is this info about the coup. And like the Chiron was like Trump threatening full blockade of Cuba. And I was like, oh, do I get on the plane now? Am I am I just going to like live in Cuba right. at this point? But of course, you know, I, I you know, I didn't want to waste that ticket. So I went. Getting in and getting out was fine, by the way. Was it was it easy for you? Like they, yeah. I, I got, I was asked last question, less questions on both sides, the Cuban side and the U.S. side, than when I like go to England or something. Yeah, it was super easy. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more complicated because of COVID. Um, we had to like uh, show, you know, there's like there were some extra forms I had to do, some extra I had to do testing and this type of stuff. But um, but no, it was pretty standard. Yeah, so I think it's still pretty easy to to visit there. You just have to say like doing some humanitarian aid and it used to be you could just like bring a bottle of aspirin and say like i'm going to give this to somebody and that's yeah that qualified but they won't even ask you that much um yeah, so very easy so easy to visit but and there wasn't this blockade that trump was threatening but there has been a major uh invocation of part of the helms burton act that makes it way less likely that Cuba is going to get this kind of tourism investment that was really seeing a major boom since the the end uh, of the the Castro era. Like a lot of hotels were going up, and you know more flights and cruise ships were coming in. And this, for that reason, like you said, tourism is a huge part of the economy. Things were looking up at that point. I think the what the Trump uh, administration did from that point onward, because they blamed Cuba for uh, what was going on in Venezuela things have got, taken a turn for the worse and then COVID has definitely hurt that. And then more recently, Hurricane Ian has really seemed to create a catastrophic situation in Cuba. And that was even before you went. So it sounds like now people are really desperate there. But even when I was there five years ago, people had trouble getting enough food. The amount of money they had wasn't enough for basic amenities. Um, so people were living relatively austere lifestyles and making do, but it seems like what happened on uh, July 11th of last year is that these basic things that people had some access to were just running out. Gasoline, food, even water. People were were fed up. Um, is that basically your under, understanding of like what led to the uprising? Yeah, totally. You know, it's interesting because 
so much of the kind of lefty media, and, and I still am not totally clear on this, you know, um, but so much of the sort of lefty media in the U.S. Um, really lauded like Cuba's response, for instance, to coronavirus, you know. Um, and the development of the of the vaccine there um, and sending, you know, doctor delegates to other countries uh, to support recovery efforts in those places. But the people on the ground were, were overwhelmingly not satisfied uh, and, and were really, um, really upset about uh, the way that the coronavirus was handled there. And it was really interesting because here in the U.S. around that time, I mean, now, you know, everyone listening in the U.S. knows like, you know, maybe you put a mask on, you know, when you go to you know a specific indoor location or something like this there it was really it was really funny because the the state's main kind of um, method for coronavirus control pretty much just mandating uh, masks in all outdoor locations um, in all public locations so epidemiologically like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense you know you're like walking along the malecon next to the atlantic ocean there's like wind blowing and you're like 200 meters away from everyone but if you don't wear a mask you're gonna get fined um, and then if you meet up with three people and you all go to someone's house, everyone takes their masks off, right? Because then they're in private space. And they don't have to, um, they don't have to wear the mask. There's no risk, you know, but you're outdoors and the police will, if you're not wearing a mask, they'll, they'll tell you to put a mask on, you know, um, sitting at a park, you know, this type of thing. Um, and so it's, you know, it's super hot and like everyone's wearing these masks and like everyone is like, there is, and there is no mask. So people are like recycling and washing, you know, these mm. like surgical masks, like hundreds of times, you know? Um, and this is kind of just um, this is, I think, um, I think it's sort of uh, representative of the type of um, the the type of sort of control that the Cuban state is able to exert, which is really the most superficial type, but that makes it seem really strong. Right. Uh, where it's, it's actually kind of like a weak, um, a weak state that doesn't have a lot of capacity to mobilize resources, uh, but it does have the capacity that it does have is basically like, you know, simple enforcement of. Um, sort of blanket um, rules in this way. Um, and then the other element, right, that that you brought up, I think, um, that I noticed more than anything was really food. Um, I didn't hear as much about like fuel stuff. Um, but but food was the was the biggest issue by far. I mean, people when I was in Havana, a lot of people that I spoke to had just moved to heaven. I mean, there's massive internal migration happening from specifically from the east to the west, and then from rural areas into into the cities. Um, one of the places that I was staying, uh, the woman who it was, you know, a man owned the building and his sister, um, had just moved from, from the East a few months before I got there. Um, and, and the situation she described was basically that, you know, um, where she had been living in like a sort of a small city in the East, um, there, there, I mean, there just was, there just was no food. Uh, and, and the, you know, the distribution would pull up like once a week and you'd make like a six hour line, um, and get like a few vegetables and like some oil or something like this, and maybe like some rice and beans. Um, and that was really like what, what you had. And there was no, there's no, like, um, there's no local production. And we can talk about why that is, uh, at a, at a different point. Um, but but really, the the main issue that people had was was food access. Um, and even in Havana, right, it was like it was tough. It's hard to find. It was hard to find like diverse um, and and good food and fresh food. Um, and so so that was that was something that people really um, highlighted. Yeah. Before I went, I was in touch with some Havana punks, and I asked them, "Do you need me to bring you anything?" And one person said, you know, we really need a computer to, like, help master our band's EP or whatever. And so I, I came up with a, a cheap computer to bring. 
And I said, okay, I got it. Anything else you need? And another guy's like, can you bring some sauce? And I said, okay, what kind of sauce would you like? And he was like, man, any kind of sauce. We don't have any sauce here. So I brought what I think is the best sauce in the world, which is Trader Joe's Sriracha barbecue sauce. But then, you know, another story I recall along those lines, before I went to Cuba, I had read about these large scale uh, gardening program, like these urban gardens, permaculture gardens. I had read on like some Stalinist blog about how this was a solution to the crisis that's coming. I guess there was a program like this in the 90s during the special period when there really wasn't any food. And when I got there, I didn't see any gardens. I saw like one very small one. And I asked one of the people involved in it, are there a lot of gardens like this around that I'm just not seeing? And then they're like, no, people think we're weird (laughs) for doing this. That kind of culture of, you know, we have to, we're an island nation, we're blockaded, we have to produce our own food. As far as I can tell, there wasn't a lot of that. There was more, you have a certain amount of food you're allowed to get from the government-run bodega, and you hope it's going to be enough for a month. Um, And that's going to be rice imported from China, maybe some local vegetables, but yeah, a lot of stuff imported from other countries. And, And it's interesting to say also that, you know, a lot of the food that's imported into Cuba actually you know, for all we talk about the blockade, it actually comes from the United States. You know, the United States is one of the one of the top trade partners with Cuba, you know, um, which is which is interesting and, and notable, I think. Yeah, but maybe I was wrong about this. But my impression is that those stores where you could walk in and buy, you know, the kind of food I'd find in a bodega here in New York are mostly for tourists and the rich because the that food was more expensive than it is in New York. And oh, people yeah. are exponentially poorer there. So yeah. my impression was no, you, totally. you just couldn't buy that stuff uh, like a normal no, person couldn't. Yeah. And even never, those stores I, had a horrible selection, like nothing yeah. you really even, want. I mean, the whole month that I was there, I didn't go into a single government store, actually. I didn't even really see one, to be honest. Um, and, and, you know, it's weird. The currency is, you know, when you go into the government stores, you have to use um, – they don't take cash. You have to use a, a card, right? And, it, you know, like – 95% of the population doesn't have digital money, doesn't have any money, you know? So it's like, it's like kind of um, a massive, a massive barrier. The other thing that you made me think of with the sauce was I did do one like fun sort of just touristy thing when I was there, which was I went scuba diving. And so I stayed with these, uh, with this scuba diving guide family. Um, and they were super nice and they had a big tourist business right there. Um, where they like guided, did scuba diving tours daily. I mean, they lived well relative to everyone else that I interacted with in Cuba, you know. Um, and and they and the you know one of the guides, her her thing was that she couldn't get shampoo and conditioner, right? Um, and and she had been like over a year uh, since since she had had access to shampoo and conditioner. Um, and so it's like these types of things that we, I guess we kind of take for granted, you know. Yeah, and. Um... Also, you know, you're, you're talking about how there's some like nice tourist stuff to do there. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that I did in Havana was uh, I went to La Fabrica. Did you go there? I didn't go there, but everybody on this, everybody on every corner tried to get me to go there. But yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it's inc- I mean, that's like a place where I saw some like real like gastronomy. You know, like yeah. I, it's this sort of like Miami Cuba hybrid that I is this very well-contained, like, cultural nightclub. Really incredible place. Really, like, you know, I went there two times in, in the week I was there. Um, but really, like, out of touch with 
the reality of the rest of Cuba. And then I think there's, I didn't go to uh, Veradero, but I think there's a, a big culture of that there too, which is this sort of um, resort area, not too far from Havana that a lot of Russian tourists go to and Chinese to like tourists from around the world, go to these resorts. And uh, this was brought up in the interview you did. Uh, the, the person you interviewed uh, noted that one of the main uh, centers of the uprising uh or uh, one of the most emblematic acts, they say, uh, was in the city of Cardenas, which was a 19th century sugar plantation, which is today in decline with a large Afro-descendant population. And it's right next to Veradero, the, Cu- the Cuban tourist capital, which uh, they say may explain a little why it was an important epicenter in the struggle and why acts of expropriation or looting occurred there. So uh, I thought that was a pretty powerful image of of this uprising it wasn't merely just we hate the government we want democracy or you know uh whatever or like we believe in fake news about communism spread on facebook it was like we are very poor people living next to luxury which just makes it seem like a the kind of class struggle you would see anywhere in the world especially in the caribbean and latin america totally yeah you're, you're totally right i mean you know, the, the social division and stratification uh, between tourists and people who work really high up in the tourist industry uh, and everyone else is palpable, you know. And, um, you know, it's it's the human people aren't allowed in. Uh, there's hotels that the government has built, you know, for uh, for 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 tourists um, that Cuban people aren't allowed to stay in. And there's separate bus lines for tourists that are that run on a more consistent basis that are just like a, a lot nicer, you know? Um, and, and I, you know, th- those lines weren't running when I was there. Um, so a lot was different when I was there because of COVID. So th- these nightclubs you were talking about weren't open. Um, and the, I, I couldn't actually take a bus um, from one city to the other city because the only bu- buses that were running were the Cuban bus lines. Um, and they wouldn't let me get on the bus lines wow. um, because you had to be Cuban. Um, so I had to take taxis um, to go between the, between the cities. Um, and, you know, it was interesting for me because, um, and, and this is a little bit of a segue, uh, but it, because, it, because talking about this kind of, um, uh, the, the, the relationship between tourism and, and the population, um, as I was talking to people, you know, they, a lot of the people that I spoke to, not, not everyone, but a lot of people that I spoke to about um, sort of um, what they wanted in, in, for Cuba in the future, um, unlike sort of what I'm hearing you say, is that it, most people said they wanted capitalism. Most people were like, we want capitalism, you yeah. know. Um, and that was really, um, you know, it's complex to, to talk through with them, of course, because in, in one way, a lot of what we talk about in the interview is, is basically the way in which what Cuba is a capitalist country. It's a very pe- peculiar type of capitalism. Um, but of course, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the commodity form and the value form um, are, are dictating the structure of, of the human economy and, and, and Cuban social and political life. Um, but, you know, and, and I tried to basically talk through with people uh, what, what some of the implications of a more kind of, um, you know, American style capitalism would be right uh, in, in Cuba. And I talked about how, you know, for instance, like the simple contrast is like houselessness virtually doesn't exist in Cuba. Everybody has a place to live, you know. Um, and and I was talking about, you know, where I come from in my city, uh, we have these massive luxury condos that are, you know, 50 percent or more empty. 
um, because people can't live in them. And then, you know, sleeping on the street next door is a, you know, is a tent city of thousands of people um, who have nowhere to stay. Um, and it was funny because, you know, the guy that I was talking to, we were, we were walking and he stopped me and we're right where we were. And he said, and he pointed to one side of the street uh, and it was this building that was kind of like dilapidated. It was being held up by like four by fours, you know? Um, and he was like, he was like, it's true. We don't live on the street, uh, but we live in buildings that haven't been, uh, haven't been renovated since 1959. And, and they're literally falling on top of us. And then he pointed to the other side of the street and it was this like massive luxury hotel um, and he was like, and the government right now is spending millions and millions of dollars investing in these hotels that Cuban people can't stay in and that tourists don't even stay in right now because it's the coronavirus. And mm. so it's basically the same thing. And I was like, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, in a way, then he kind of, you know, made the point that I was trying to make, which is that you already have capitalism, right? Like capitalism isn't what you want. Capitalism is what you don't want. Um, and it was, it, but it was a funny interaction to kind of paint this parallel between, um, you know, a re- sort of basically like a sort of real estate investment at the expense of, you know, people that are actually uh, living and, 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 and trying to survive in a, in a certain place um, and, and sort of a striking parallel between what happens here and what happens there. Yeah, uh, I remember I heard uh, American leftists say once talking about these kinds of contradictions in Cuba that they would rather be middle class in the United States but they would rather be poor in Cuba. The idea being, if you're poor in Cuba, yeah, you're not going to live on the street. You're going to have food guaranteed to you. You're going to have medical care guaranteed to you. But it seems like in the last few years, that's in, increasingly just no longer the case. It's not, it's not always been the case in the history of Cuba since 1959. Of course, the special period was a particularly brutal period of time. But it, it, it seems like we're now returning to that point and it makes sense that that's going to push people to say this is so bad you know maybe i have my political sympathies with the revolution or with communism or whatever but i can't eat i can't you know they have these hospitals they don't have any equipment and so at a certain point it's just not an ideological question the person you interview brings up a really interesting point about hamburgerization which also goes along with what we're talking about about the sauce and uh yeah. you know la-, la fabrica and the gastronomy there and I'll just, I'll just quote what they say. Hamburgerization is a way of naming the voracious desire to consume a hamburger and all that this implies, a way of expressing the social disbelief in all the official discourse and of all the solutions that come from the state. So, you know, if you've got that hamburger hanging over your head, all these political questions might not matter. Of course, this isn't like a, a very political question of like, I, I yeah. need to eat a hamburger. Yeah. But it's something that motivates people to at least privately delegitimize the government. Right. Okay, there's a confluence of forces, I think, coming coming into play that you bring up. Um, and, and, and I want to return to another thing that's talked about in the in the interview, which is what, 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 the, what the person talks about, the end of the social enchantment. And the social enchantment, I think, uh, what they mean by that is, um, is this, this belief, this faith in the revolution, um, this, this faith, particularly in Fidel. Um, Fidel is like an incredibly powerful um, figure in, in the Cuban consciousness, um, and that, that people ultimately uh, lost faith in towards the end, and then, and then you know, now, now he's gone. Um, and and so it's interesting to hear the way in which, you know, yeah, like, you know, you saying even even though they might have sympathies with the revolution, uh, their material conditions are opposed to that. And, and I think what, what I experienced there and in talking to these folks, um, people no longer have sympathy with the revolution. And, and, it's, and it's the most 
um, vexed aspect because communism um, and even the revolution has become associated exclusively um, with this terrible autocratic, um, you know, capitalist uh, regime um, that's now under a, a guy named um, Miguel Diaz Canel, and um, and so people, you know, basically are all sort of self-proclaimed anti-communists. They're all like bajo la revolución, um, and so it's interesting to talk to people on the street and kind of and t- t- talk about, you know, are, are you really against the revolution, the ideals of the revolution, or are you against the Cuban regime as it stands? You know, and would you actually like to see the ideals of the revolution sort of more realized in a different way? Um, and, and, and people responded in different ways to this. Um, but I think that this, um, this piece around the end of the social enchantment is really, is really key. And, and the way in which the Cuban government itself has not only passively through, um, through creating terrible conditions for people, but also actively contributed to that. You know, when I, when I talk to them about this idea of, of hamburgerization or this um, sort of obsession with the commodity, you know, um, it, the, the comrades there said that this is also manufactured by the Cuban state um, because mm. the Cuban state owns the businesses. So it's, it, they have an incentive to, to create consumerism. Um, and they said it's, it's actually less U.S. propaganda um, that kind of manufactures this desire for cell phones and shoes and, and these types of um, consumer items um, than it is the, the actual advertising of the Cuban state itself. And I'm not sure you know, how much this was already the case when you were there, but it was really interesting to walk around, um, you know, sort of the shopping districts um, in uh, in, in Cuba, um, I went to, I, I stayed in Cienfuegos for a little while and on all of downtown Cienfuegos is like a little kitschy, um, you know, cobblestone streets with glass, like for window shopping, you know, and they all, it's sparse products. Um, but it's all, you know, it's basically like, um, a weird, like, um, super sort of drab, like, uh, much less flashy, um, but like version of like a U.S. mall. Um, and, and it's all owned by the Cuban government. Um, and so, you know, the, the comrades, you know, really talked about the way in which, um, the Cuban state in order to generate revenue has, has pushed a kind of consumer, um, consumer ethos onto the population. And, and this is also a a much broader, there's sort of much broader political stakes and implications to this. And and this, I want to return briefly to a point you brought up earlier about the special period that, that was really interesting in a conversation we had that didn't explicitly make it into the interview, um, which is that I basically asked, you know, things were so bad in the 1990s, right? Things were so bad um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, which was essentially the the main importer to Cuba. Why didn't something like this happen then? Um, And there were two answers, right? And the first answer had to do with the social enchantment people's faith in Fidel, people's faith in the revolution, um, people's commitment to each other, to, to the Cuban project, um, and this type of thing that, that kept them kind of uh, strong on the side of whatever it was that, you know, n- n- the government in a certain way. But then on the other hand, right, what he said was the government essentially, the, the state uh, essentially receded entirely um, during the 1990s and, 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 and devolved the prerogative to um, reproduce social life onto people themselves. And so, and so I remember this statement actually really clearly, he, the person I was speaking to said to me, you know, it was the closest that Cuba has ever come to communism because people took it upon themselves to reproduce their lives for themselves and for each other. I mean, he described the way in which, you know, during the 1990s, he could bicycle from his home, which was, you know, probably an hour and a half south of sort of in the south of Havana, he could bicycle to, to the water, to the ocean north, 
and have plenty to, plenty to eat on the way, have a place to stay if you needed to crash over the night. Like there was a kind of a total taking up of the responsibility of social reproduction. And, and this meant that teachers, lawyers, doctors went to the rural areas and, and grew food, um, among other things. And also sort of producers cooperatives for textiles and, and all the basic things that people need, need to live. And then what, what, what happened was at the end of the 1990s, uh, two things occurred. Um, uh, Chavismo in Venezuela, and then the regularization of relations with Russia, uh, with Putin, um, again. And, and essentially the way that it was described is um, after this period of basically like immense autonomy um, for people who lived in Cuba, um, the state reasserted control. The state kind of um, disciplined people back into a passive consumer role um, that was dependent on an import economy, um, primarily from you know, Russia and Venezuela, um, in order to reestablish hegemony, um, in the country. And, and since then, these past 20 years has, has been a sort of systematic project of breaking, um, sort of the people's, um, will towards autonomy. And, and he described the way in which, you know, Fidel himself basically at the turn of the 21st century was like, stop farming, go back to the cities, um, and, and kind of returned, uh, to this narrative that, um, Cuba needed to industrialize, Cuba needed to modernize, um, and, and that, um, you know, producing for themselves was sort of not the, not the way. Um, mm. and so, you know, all of these, all of these things, um, ha- ha- sort of come together and, um, and, and burst forth, right. The pressures that, that, that build up, um, from these, these dynamics, um, ha- came together and sort of burst forth, um, I think on July 11th. Yeah. And after a certain period of time of this stabilization of the economy, you get a, especially after the death of Castro, you get this liberalization in a lot of different ways. You know, Cubans could travel outside the country, more U.S. Americans could come in easier, more tourism. Also, major change, of course, is the Internet being widely available, not widely available like we understand it in the United States. Uh, When I was there, you had to buy a a card and go to a park. And actually the park closest to where I was staying was under construction. So it was like dozens of people of all walks of life, you know, tourists, you know, uh, very poor workers, everybody sitting in this like park that's under construction, looking at their phones, using the internet, but you could go on Facebook. Cuba would, would let you have a Facebook account, join Facebook groups, that sort of thing. That's how I talked to those punks I mentioned. So it was out of the this fa- this social networking on Facebook that call to protest in San Antonio de los Baños was made after a uh, a visit of uh, Diaz Canal, the the new president, by uh, the per- uh, the comrade in the who you interviewed says a young guy who's part of the LGBTQ activist community, who's uh, he says his name is Andy, and I never I've never heard that name in latin america before i don't know maybe that's a cuban thing or maybe that you just translate it from uh andres to andy I don't know. maybe yeah i, I don't know i i've, I've looked I, I googled him uh and he comes up as andy let me see if i can because sure, whenever i meet someone from latin america and i say my name's andy they're like oh henry but yeah so this guy named uh andy made this call for a protest that sort of went viral throughout the country and he makes some interesting observations about this fact that Facebook was used to uh, spur this massive uprising, which he calls the largest uprising or, or political event since 1959. And there have been small, you know, spontaneous riots and protests 
since then, but this was vastly larger and, and more ferocious. Um, and so he says that, you know, Facebook let us do this, but Facebook is also a way for the government to see everybody involved, you know, everyone who saw these posts, everyone who shared it. Um, and so it's uh, a, a kind of a double bind, like you're talking about with the commodification. On one hand, um, it's trying to make people more passive. Uh, on the other hand, it's making people really pissed off that they can't get the hamburger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're totally right. That was the next thing that I was going to bring up. And it might even be different now from when you were there, the internet. Now a lot of people have Wi-Fi in their homes. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, I actually couldn't connect to it because for some, there was like a problem with iPhones. Like iPhones couldn't, um, couldn't, couldn't connect to the Wi-Fi. Um, but, um, but it was very widespread. I mean, m- many, many people uh, had cell phones. You know, you, you walk down the street and it doesn't look that much different from in terms of cell phone usage walking down the street in, in Oakland or New York where the kids, every kid is just sitting there on their cell phone, you know. Um, and so I think you're totally right. I mean, it, that makes a huge difference. Um, and then, of course, you know, with regards to, to um, the sort of tactical conversation about social media usage, um, it very much was, you know, uh, the way that it was described was um, the posting and the live streaming is what allowed the, or had played a role in facilitating the, um, the, the rapid spread of the mobilizations across the entire island um, in one day. I mean, it was really only a one day uprising and sort of into the night, maybe a little bit into the hours of the 12th. Um, but, but, but it was really short, um, but, but it was, it reached everywhere, you know, and this is, this type of thing is really only possible when, when you have that, um, you know, that type of platform. And then at the same time, um, people are unfamiliar with, uh, you know, online security or, or even in-person security, right? Most people, you know, didn't, weren't covering their faces, you know, people were all on the live streams and these are the same issues we encounter in the United States. Like it's not, it's not different. Um, but, uh, but it did allow for, um, you know, it did, it did allow for some pretty, pretty, uh, brutal repression and, and, um, and sweeps of, of people who were live streaming and who were caught on video, um, after, after that day. And another contradiction the person you interview mentions is this, um, kind of naive watchword of citizens' rights that people in the protests yeah. had. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think it's kind of um, it's kind of similar, you know. I would say, you know, it, it's kind of a reform versus revolution question, right? Um, and and to be honest, I didn't I didn't really encounter that a whole lot. What my impression from the interview was really that that he was wanting to stress the way in which the the types of mobilizations were really not that demand based. I mean, they were not very. They were not the the thrust of them was really not around citizens' rights because people. It kind of like the Cuban people have, have kind of been pushed past that point already, even though there hasn't been a lot of social movement leading up to it around sort of citizens' rights campaigns. Um, you know, people are really at the point where they're like, this kind of, um, we want the whole regime gone. Like, we want everything to fundamentally change. Um, we're not kind of like asking for, um, you know, for, for small reforms or for different types of handouts or these types of things. Um, we, we we really want uh, the, the fall of this whole of this whole regime, um, and that and that was kind of the impression that I got talking to people and and also from from what he was saying. Okay, so maybe I'm misreading this a little bit. He says the naivete that I'm talking about was also fed by the notion of citizens' rights, an idea that has been intensely promoted by the Cuban liberal and social democratic opposition, 
and the global democratic media with their narrative of the duty of states to guarantee the freedom of expression and association, et cetera. So I, I took that to mean that what people thought that they were demanding when they took the streets is that the state should be guaranteeing some basic minimums for them as a citizen instead of calling for, uh, you know, the revolutionary overthrow of the state. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think I think that both of those um, I think that, that there's obviously like kind of a, a mix um, of, of motivations and of ideas that are in the street. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, a desire for kind of changes in access to health or education, uh, can, can manifest as a, um, as a, uh, a slogan of, you know, down with the revolution or something like this. Um, when, when really it's like, it's more complex. And I think that the, uh, it, it's really interesting actually right after that section, the next, uh, the next couple of sentences, um, I, I really like, uh, you know, he says these ideas, those of sort of citizens' rights um, that are deeply desired and little realized in a society like Cuba, which has experienced a schizoid segmentation between the right to health, education, and tranquility, and the grantor of these rights, a Stalinist state that demands the renunciation of all other human rights in return. It's a really fascinating interview. It's on, uh, I forgot to mention that it's on the Spirit of May 28th website, sm28.org. Of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. So I want to just round it out with a couple questions. First, about repression after the uprising. And then something that I'm sure is on listeners' mind is that isn't this all just the United States' fault uh, for their for having this terrible blockade? And obviously, right now, there's a, a, a movement brewing in the U.S. among anti-imperialists and leftists uh, to loosen the blockade so some uh, re- relief from Hurricane Ian can come in, uh, which I think is sorely needed. And and he, he talks about the complexities of the blockade as well. So we'll get into that. But first, what happened to uh, our comrade Andy and other leaders and participants of the uprising? This is something that, that they talk about in the interview as well. And, you know, obviously one of the main things we talk about in the United States is, you know, this paradigm of mass incarceration and uh, the disproportionate amount of people that are that are in, in prison, disproportionate amount of black and brown people that are in prison. Um, and the comrades I spoke to in Cuba basically said, you know, in Cuba, it's a similar situation, I think, you know, and, and there's basically no statistics really about the Cuban prison uh, population. Um, I, I believe, and uh, we'd have to look it up, but Cuba has... Um, one of the highest incarceration rates um, in the world, maybe somewhere uh, top five, five or six. Um, and most of those people, right, is is political um, political prisoners. I mean, and, and this is one of the one of the wonderful things about Cuba is that there's really no crime. There's really little like uh, inter or intra communal like violence. Um, it's it's a pretty distinct. And this is a little bit of an aside, but uh, it, it was one of the main sticking points about. America. They wanted to ask me a lot about the gun violence here and a lot about um, kind of all the social problems we have here. And this was this was another conversation we had about the ramifications of American style capitalism, I guess. Um, but but I mean, Cuba is an extremely, extremely safe country. Um, and, and so the pe- all the people that are in prison are pretty much for political reasons. Um, and, and it's very it's very opaque. Um, so people initially were. Um, charged with massively disproportionate sentences. I mean, we're talking on the scale of decades um, for things like sedition. Um, and, and this is, and this was one of the questions in the interview is kind of what has the follow-up been to July 11th? Have there been kind of social movements uh, or political organizations that have kept organizing and kept trying to uh, sort of um, channel the, what burst forth on that day um, in, into something more sustained? Um, and really the only, the only example of that is the, um, 
uh, is the kind of anti-repression um, groups, which are mostly families of people that were that were incarcerated from the actions of that day, um, trying to get justice for uh, mostly, you know, um, their 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 sons and daughters um, and, and and grandsons and granddaughters, you know, um, and. And so some some appeals have been have been made. I believe that the the person Andy uh, is on a house arrest um, now, and and I think part of that is uh, is you know is is, is capacity. Um, you know, there's there, for the amount of people that were rounded up um, after the 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 uprising, um, there just wasn't enough space in prisons, and so um, I think they're instituting this new kind of house arrest um, policy. Um, as well. And, and the other thing that, that I remember them talking to me about was how, you know, the, since this was such an unprecedented action, the Cuban state didn't really know how to control it, didn't really know how to address it, like on the actual day, like during the, during the uprising. Um, and so a lot of the people that were arrested were not, it wasn't very, the way that the Cuban state targeted people actually initially wasn't very strategic. Afterwards, it was with the kind of combing of social media. But initially, um, because the protests were so excuse me, so dense, and there were tens of thousands of people there, the Cuban state didn't really have access to the people in the middle, you know? Um, and so people kind of got picked off the sides who really were just standing out there, just out there just to watch and, and participate. And so this was one of the things that they were mentioning as well, is a lot of the people that were um, that were thrown in prison, um, that were charged with these these crazy sentences, um, were, were simply just on the street. Um, and, and it was kind of, you know, a, a sort of... Uh, you know, uh, examples were made of people, I guess, um, is part of what, part of what was described to me. Um, so that's a, that's a little bit of, of a, of a response, I guess. Yeah. The, the part about prisons in the article was really interesting. And like, you know, like everything, it just leaves me with a lot more questions because, you know, we, we, the, the image that we get from Cuba on the outside is just so two dimensional from propaganda for or against Cuba but yeah, what you just said is I'm looking up incarceration rates and the United States has an incarceration rate of uh, 629 per 100,000 and Cuba is like 510. Like you say, these figures might be kind of questionable, but I was, I was surprised to hear you say most of them are political prisoners. I, I, I didn't know that. And then in the article, they say that uh, Cuba wants to eliminate the figure of the political prisoner, the prisoner of conscience. And, and, and yeah, and it sounds like uh, although these charges were disproportionate it's uh they're they're moving towards house arrest I, you know I, I don't know i wonder if like that's a the state trying to weaken a little bit on its authoritarianism understanding that there is this vast social disenchantment totally it's hedging it's hedging completely i think you're totally right you know the more they realize now you know it, and this is and i think it's emblematic of a shift of a a tipping point right where there's a sort of a there is a sort of a, ta- um, a tangible shift in power right where they, in a, in a sense, maybe they see that the, where the social movement, um, the social movement power is, is around um, political prisoners, and so they don't want to inflame that more. Um, and and and, the, and, the, and and so choosing to go for the house arrest is is a little bit of a, um, a kind of a uh, a concession, you know, mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of quell uh, quell where they see the the surge the surge coming around political organizing. Yeah, and absolutely like the the recent uh, plebiscite about LGBTQ rights and feminist rights and that uh, I, I haven't really haven't looked into 
what the legislation is, but I remember when I was there, these were things that leftists and anarchists in Cuba were talking about as like emerging struggles. So it's interesting to see them sort of make some progress on that as well, or, or perhaps you could say capitulate to these grassroots movements that were were popping up. Totally. Yeah, you could see there was a th- th- there were billboards when I was there also about this, um, you know, LGBTQ discrimination, this type of thing. And I think it's mentioned briefly in the interview as well. And, and, and really how uh, kind of in a similar dynamic, I think, to, to what we see in the U.S., some some how some of these, um, you know, these these really authentic uh, social movements um sort of get recuperated a little bit by the state um, and, 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 um, and, and come to become uh, the state seeks to, to represent itself as, um, as sort of progressive in these ways. Um, and, and, and really in order to, to kind of throw water on the fire a bit, but it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, you know, sort of nuanced uh, dynamic for sure. Along those lines. And this is just my impression of the, the Cuban state and uh, the ideological apparatus of it. My impression is that it's run by a, a communist party with some revolutionary imagery, but politics just isn't very important to them. What's important to them is like the stability of the states, opening up for foreign investments, becoming an economically viable country, and, and for the governing apparatus to hang on to power. So while there is like a revolutionary police, and while you can be arrested for dissent or for protesting, it seemed like their main problem with, for example, there are these unpermitted LGBTQ rights congas for a while. These sort of like pride parade type things that where organizers were arrested for having these unpermitted events. The problem was more just that they were unpermitted than that it was LGBTQ thing. Obviously, Cuba has a history of repression because gay people were connected with foreign powers or something. But my impression was, you know, it wasn't about what they were protesting or calling for, just that they were doing it outside of state permission. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a a heavily bureaucratic regime. Um, I'll, I'll say that much as well. I mean, I was stopped at one point. I was walking on the wrong side of a sidewalk. Um, and it, it took about an hour and a half for me to talk to three or four different police officers, um, show them my passport, show oh, wow. them my, my visa, you know, it just because I was like walking on one side of a yellow line, mm. I could have been four feet on the other side of it. And it would have been, it wouldn't have been a problem, you know? Um, and it's just these types of, you know, these types of things of like really establishing power in very petty ways, which the way that the comrades there talked about it, they were like, that's the sign of a weak state, you mm. know, a strong state doesn't need to do those things. Um, and that was an interesting reflection to me. Yeah. Another example of, uh, of what I was talking about, about, you know, like this, because, because I think like a lot of lefts in the United States want to say like, well, they, um, they have to be repressive because of this, you know, foreign influence, uh, trying to, you know, this neoliberal, uh, pinkwashing, for example, coming in, you know, I was talking to some anarchists there, uh, who were organizing in Havana and I said, I'm surprised that the state lets you organize. And they're like, Oh no, the, the political police visit us all the time and tell us they're going to arrest us if we keep doing what we're doing. And I said, oh, it's because you're anarchists and they're Stalinists or whatever. And I was like, no, they don't care about our politics. They just don't like that we're doing it without their permission. They, the political police don't know anything about politics. <laughs> it's, it's not about that at all. Um, I don't know how true that is, but I thought that was like kind of telling and, and definitely a lot different than how we might imagine uh, a communist state. Um, but let's try to wrap up, um, 
with uh, probably, you know, like a really big question, which is about the blockade, of course. Um, yeah. And the, the section, if, if you, you know, it's a long interview, but this is the section I th- really think people should read because uh, the person you interview admits that the blockade is real. Um, it's incredibly damaging to life in Cuba. Uh, and, you know, the, he, certainly not trying to get give the get U.S. off the hook. Um, of course, in 1960, when the blockade started after the expropriation of U.S. businesses uh, in Cuba, the State Department put out a memo that said, quote, the only foreseeable means of alienating internal support for the Castro regime is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. So. That was the U.S. strategy in 1960. Uh, 61 years later, we see this uprising and the, the person you interviewed describing it in exactly the same way, social disenchantment. But what he says, responding to that, is that, well, the revolution was about the autonomy of Cuba. It was about Cuba is supposed to be free from, from the United States, from imperialism in general. And so now the, you know, the demand is open up the blockade, let's do more trade with the United States, let's have more tourism, let us trade more with uh, more uh, other countries in the region, uh, basically, like, let us be a free market state. So he's, my impression with what he was saying is, is not that we shouldn't lift the blockade or the United States isn't to blame for this, but that the, the Cuban state is using it as an alibi for uh, its incompetence on one hand and also demanding to to liberalize on the other hand so it's like a a double bind where you know it's not really working politically in terms of creating the kind of you know autonomous communist worker-led society that he says or or like you were talking about like maybe we got a glimpse of that in the 90s during the special period when things were really bad and on the other hand you're not getting the hamburgers You're, you're getting neither yeah i mean i think you you pretty much summed it up really well there um and I actually don't don't know how much I can add. I think I think it is a really important part of the interview. Um, maybe one of the most important parts, especially for people in the United States. Yeah, I mean his his main his main point is um, you know if if the Cuban Revolution is an anti imperialist revolution um, and it's a revolution for people's autonomy, um, then then why are we so desperate to be in to be kind of further imbricated in a in a global capitalist market um, and be dependent on the imports of of the strongest imperialist power in the world, the United States? You know, um, and you know it's really uh, it is a tough it is a very tough um, tough question because of course there are massive ramifications for uh, for the blockade and and there's a way in which it's interesting to hear that quote uh, from the State Department in 1960. That kind of in the in the long run, right? It was a sort of long game that um, that ultimately kind of was was able uh, to, to be effective in a certain way um, against uh, against the prospect of the realization of the ideals of the Cuban Revolution. Um, and so, I think we can think about it on multiple kind of on multiple timescales. Um, and then the only other thing that I'll say to kind of to kind of conclude, you know, uh, and thinking about what the what the horizon is um, for Cuba. Um, it's really challenging, and this is kind of the conclusion of the of the interview as well. Um, it's challenging to conceive of a fall of the regime that doesn't result in basically a, a total liberalization of of Cuba and, and, a, and a and a kind of normalization of capitalist global relations between uh, a new kind of uh, democratic, you know, uh, Cuban government um, and the United States. 
um, and everyone else, you know, um, because um, people are so people are so at least rhetorically right done with communism, done with the revolution. Um, and so uh, I think that there's a huge tension there in how things will will go moving forward. Um, and, you know, it was and, and this is, you know, maybe it's interesting to to think also about the way that these comrades characterize the Cuban state as it exists. And, and they wanted to call it neoliberal. They wanted to call it a neoliberal state. I think I think it's a little bit of a misnomer um, just because I think neoliberalism is kind of um, a vacuous concept already. Uh, and even to apply it to, you know, kind of more classic cases, it still misses a lot of nuance. Um, and I think we can talk more specifically about uh, what kind of... Um, what we mean when we say those types of words, and I think it doesn't it doesn't really do justice to the peculiarity of of um, sort of Cuban political economy or the Cuban state regime. Um, but you know, Cuba, the Cuban state already largely gets its revenue from um, you know from interactions with private private enterprises. You know, in the East, uh, cacao is the is the is the major commodity that's produced. Um, and there's an exclusive contract with Nestle, for instance. So like all mm. of the cacao produced by the so-called cooperatives in the east of the country is sold to Nestle on the international market. Mm. Um, so these types of relationships already exist. Right. Um, and so it's um, but but people but because the Cuban state has this veneer of socialism and of communism, people understand the problems that they're facing to be problems of communism, not problems of capitalism. Right. Um, and so it creates a really difficult dynamic for a social horizon where people do want um, at democracy and they associate democracy with capitalism and so it's very scary for the for the future for the for the upcoming years right and i i think uh us in the united states who uh are you know believe in communism in a, a, a different form than how it's played out in cuba it's a very important lesson this idea of social disenchantment if it really is as widespread as the the person you interview believes it to be because, you know, we've already seen this play out with the fall of the Soviet Union, which is, you know, all these people who lived in communist countries hate communism because they experienced it. They, they experienced this real existing socialism. It, it wasn't like the CIA brainwashed them or paid them to hate it. They didn't like the, the way the state worked. They didn't like uh, what their lives were under it. And. I think uh, us here who, you know, we, we're just inundated with all this anti-communist propaganda and we know what is untrue about what is said about Cuba and the USSR um, from state and right wing propaganda. We, we might think that people who have a problem with these communist countries are are purely ignorant and brainwashed. And we just have to tell them the truth that like literacy rates went up and, and that's sort of, and like how bad the Batista regime was or how b bad the blockade is. And those things are all true. And you can also know those things and say, yeah, I don't like the Communist Party of Cuba. I don't like the way they're managing this pandemic. I don't like that. I don't have enough food to eat. Uh, uh, and those are legitimate grievances. And those are reasons why people don't like the word communism around the world today. Totally. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the other only other thing I was thinking uh, to say, um, which I thought was just funny, it was a funny small interaction I had. I was playing basketball, I went to a basketball court, you know, a lot when I was there, there in Havana. And I was talking to some guys there and, um, and they said that, you know, they assured me, you know, they had participated in the uprising. And they assured me that the United States and the CIA had absolutely nothing to do 
uh, with the uprising. There was a completely organic Cuban uprising. But then they said, if the CIA did come here and, and want to like overthrow the Cuban regime, everybody would be down. <laughs> and that, that was <laughs> that's that's like their, their version of uh, come save us, President G. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were like, and they weren't saying themselves that they were necessarily wanting that. They were just saying that if that did happen, um, people would people would throw their support behind a, a coup or you know any type of regime change, basically. And and I mean that's a that's a that's a scary reality. Of course, it's just yeah. the perspective of a couple guys on a basketball court, but it was striking nonetheless. But I mean that's the way this th- this stuff often plays out. You know, this is like yeah. you know, the story of German unification and uh, yeah. you know uh, in the fall of the Soviet Union. But yeah, things are really grim in Cuba right now. So this is a perspective that I'm really glad to get. And I, I encourage everyone to to read it for yourselves. And I'm sure um, there'll be a lot of debate about that in our Discord and on Twitter and uh, in the comments. And I encourage that. So uh, thanks a lot for listening. Do you want to, uh, if you have a minute, you want to just talk about the Tamarack project before we go? Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, should I just describe it a little bit? Yeah, or? sure. Yeah, I mean, Tamarack is a social center in Oakland. It's a bar and restaurant. Uh, we try, we try to keep it, uh, keep it alive. Um, we're open as a restaurant and bar uh, from six to ten on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, and then on Sundays, we have a, a free library that operates from one to four. Um, and then you know we do, and then you know we do various other events. You know, film screenings, panel discussions, study groups. Um, you know, reading groups and this type of thing. Um, and and of course, like parties and fundraisers and DJ sets and this type of stuff. And um, and and really, we're 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 a place to gather, or a place for people to come together and find each other, um, and kind of build affinity um, and figure out, you know, how how we're all going to do this do this together. You know, hatch a plan. Oh, sounds great. But do you have hamburgers? Uh, we, 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 we actually used to have my, so I used to be in the kitchen, you know, and my, one of my main things was impossible burgers. Um, but now we haven't been serving, uh, hamburgers. We've kind of, uh, we have kind of nicer food now, you know, Mm. we're like past the hamburger point, you know, but you've got the sauce. We've got the sauce. We've got lots of sauce. What kind of sauce can you expect on the yuca fries? Uh, We can get, it's like a tangy, like a spicy mayo, you know, uh, with the yuca fries. Yeah. That's the American dream right there. Megan, we got it. We got it locked and loaded, folks. All right, D. Hasta la victoria siempre. Thanks for talking. All right. Thank you so much.